Let's turn our Bibles to Matthew chapter 26. Matthew 26, where I will focus our attention yet again on the Garden of Gethsemane, starting in verse 36 to verse 46, will be the text of Scripture that we will look at this morning. A couple weeks ago, I heard about Daniel Simon's inattentional blindness experiment. Professor Simons teaches at the University of Illinois. He is a researcher in the field of psychology, a specific field called visual cognition. I'd never seen or heard of him or his experiments, but apparently on YouTube, one of his most well-known experiments has 20-some million views on it. The experiment is called the Invisible Gorilla. It's a very simple idea, but has profound results. People tend to believe in the world that you and I live in that what you can see is what you can believe. That's the prevailing worldview and the waters that we swim in every day. But the invisible gorilla experiment shows that in reality, we often will overemphasize what we're able to perceive or see. For instance, you and I would assume that if you were watching six teenagers walking around in circles, passing a basketball to one another, that you would notice that in the middle of all of that passing and in this game, if someone was dressed up as a gorilla, walked into the middle of their game, started jumping up and down, waving their arms, that you would notice that. Surely that's obvious, and it wouldn't be missed. Yet, in Simon's invisible gorilla experiment, hundreds of people missed it. In fact, over the course of these trials, half of the people tested missed something that was obvious, something that was right in front of their faces. So you might be wondering, how does this happen? If you go on YouTube and you watch the Invisible Gorilla video, you will definitely see the gorilla. Why? Well, because I just told you about it ahead of time. But the people doing the experiment did not know what they were about to watch. And what they were seeing was six teenagers, three dressed in white t-shirts and three dressed in black t-shirts. And before watching the video, they were told that they are to count how many times the basketball is passed between those wearing white shirts and not to count those who are wearing black shirts. And so as they watch and they count up 15 passes over the course of a couple minutes of this little game, the people focus so hard on only counting and seeing the people wearing white t-shirts that they block out anything that is black, including a big black gorilla jumping up and down in the middle of the video. In fact, some people, after the video was over, would be told, now, did you see the gorilla? After they were asked, so how many passes was it? And they say, well, it was 15, I got it right. But did you see the gorilla? No, there was no gorilla. And in fact, they would double down on it when they were told, no, there really was a gorilla. You kind of missed it. They said, you're a liar. You're crazy. Simon's point from this experiment is clear. Attention is powerful. Our perceptions of reality will often depend on what your attention is upon. And so what we focus on is often 
what we see. And I believe that Simon's experiment is in a beautiful illustration of what happens to many of us every day when we're being surrounded in a world that is saying that you can only believe what you see. And many of us are not too different than those 50 plus percent people that miss the big jumping up and down gorilla. In fact, I would want to argue that this is one of the main reasons people don't believe in God or struggle to in the first place. Because they're only focused on what they can see in their life, in the world around them. And to be a Christian is to fundamentally believe in something a lot of times daily that you don't see. And it's also one of the reasons why I believe many of us don't pray. There's something right in front of us. There's something going on, but we fail to see it because our attention has been trained and redirected elsewhere. And in many ways, I think this is one way to explain what is going on in this passage that I'm about to read. So let's read it together. Jesus praying in the garden, he sees something that his disciples fail to see. Verse 36. Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled, and then he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And then going a little farther, he fell on his face and he prayed, saying, My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the disciples and he found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, So, could could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And then again, for a second time, he went away and he prayed, My father, if this cannot pass, unless I drink it, your will be done. And again he came and he found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. So leaving them again, he went away and he prayed for the third time, saying the same words again. And he came to the disciples and he said to them, Sleep, take your rest later on. See, the hour is at hand. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise. Let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. For those of you that were not here last week, this is actually part two of the Garden of Gethsemane. And last week I gave you one big idea. Jesus wants us, as his disciples, to know something. Jesus wants us to know something. We are on holy ground in this passage of Scripture. It is unique. It is different because it is told from the first-person perspective of Jesus himself. This is not from eyewitness testimony as much as it is from Jesus' own retelling of what happened in an intimate moment between him and the Father alone in a garden. And so, for that matter, this passage exists because Jesus told us what happened in that garden. So Jesus wants us to know something, and last week we considered he wants us to know that he is a human and why he died. And the answers were, he's a human. Throughout all of these 
details, we see his humanity, full humanity, by the way he obeyed, by the way that he was suffering emotion and experiencing the everyday emotions that all humans experience, by the way he was tempted, Jesus was human. And then secondly, we saw that the meaning of his death was summed up in the words, this cup. That the cup of God's wrath against sinners, his anger toward those who are unrighteous and rebellious, is being drunk and poured out on Jesus. That was last week. This week, we have two more points because this passage is holy ground. It has a lot in it. And we didn't even really touch on prayer or on companionship in last week's message. So that's what I want to do today. Jesus wants you to know something. What does he want you to know? Well, that he's human. He wants you to know why he died, the cup. He wants you to know how to pray. And he wants you to know the importance of companionship. So let's finish this two-part message today first by looking at that Jesus wants us to know how we should pray. So when you read this story and you think through it, what kind of lessons might we learn about prayer by seeing it modeled by our master, our Lord? And I think there's at least three things that I want to point out. First, I want to observe his posture. Second, I want to observe his pattern. And third, his purpose. Three Ps to observe about prayer that I think will instruct us in our praying. First, his posture. This is the when and where question. When is Jesus praying? Where is he praying? And and what kind of posture then is he in this time and place? And I think the answer that we see in this passage is that he is praying in his pain. He is praying when he is weak. He is praying alone, intimately with the Father, and that there is therefore a very important theme that we see all through the Bible that's reaffirmed here in especially the Gospels, that Jesus oftentimes gets alone with the Father to pray. He's praying deep into the night. The posture of prayer specifically is said, If you look at verse 39 and going a little farther, he fell on his face and he prayed. In his pain, in his weakness, alone with the Father, deep into the night. It's late at night if we're tracking with the setting and story of all that's going on in Matthew 26. And he's down on his face before the Father. Might seem obvious, might not seem like a big deal. But I think all of these circumstances are helpful for us to consider our own timing and posture of how we might go about praying in regards to the setting of looking at what's happening. Many people will, in their pain, decide to stuff their feelings, as we mentioned last week, or overinflate them. But Christians turn to God in their pain. When we are weak, it is through prayer that we can be strong, which is the very reason Jesus is turning in prayer, as we will see in a moment. The purpose of the prayer is to strengthen him in his weakness. He's praying alone because there is the reality of the individual discipleship of you and the Father. Pray alone. Pray just you in the closet, Jesus says in Matthew chapter 6. Pray in the morning. Pray deep into the night. And lose sleep if you have to, whether that's getting up early or staying up late. 
and your body position is not irrelevant. Bow your head. Get on your knees. Use your physical body repeatedly over and over again to teach yourself and your actual physical body that God is to be hallowed. He is different. He is not casually to be conversed with as we slouch back into our chair as the primary posture of our prayer time. We hardly ever in all of scripture, not just in this passage, see people praying to God in that way. We see people with hands raised. We see people flat on their faces. We see people bowing before the Lord. We see people that are doing all kinds of postures other than this relaxed, I'm cool with Jesus kind of prayer. But interestingly enough, it seems as if that kind of Jesus is my best friend, or if you've ever seen the t-shirt, Jesus is my homeboy, is all the more common amongst people today. As my former pastor Mark Dever would say, that is because our culture believes that the height of intimacy is being casual with someone. There is something about being intimate with someone that is your authoritative father and God, and we should see that Jesus himself The second person of the Trinity treats his father with utmost respect with his words and his posture. So consider your own prayer life. Take down inventory of your posture. Correct it. Sit up straight and bow your head or get on your knees if you're physically able. These things should be commended as normal, biblical, and helpful, not arbitrary. What you do with your body, again, it does matter. And so as Jesus is in the garden, he is with his disciples, but away from them. With them, but away from them. Alone, but not alone. The last time Jesus was with these three disciples, they saw a beautiful glimpse of his blazing glory on the Mount of Transfiguration. Peter, James, and John. But this time, in this dark hour of the night, Everything is different. It's the complete opposite of that last time Jesus and the three disciples are doing something intimate together. So instead of glory, Jesus is grieving to the point of death. Instead of the voice of the Father, there is silence. Instead of the brightness of the sun, we're in the darkness in the middle of the night. And the powers of darkness seem to be winning. And this is the thing that again highlights Jesus' posture from slouched, relaxed, sleeping disciples. On the mountain, when it was glorious and bright, they were fully aware, attention, oh, I'm not going to miss this. But in the darkest of dark, Jesus sees what they do not see. And he is able to respond appropriately by bowing before the Father in prayer. And so that's the first thing I want us to observe, is that Jesus' posture in this setting is appropriate. And you should similarly consider the posture in the various settings of your prayer. Secondly, the pattern. What does Jesus pray? What's the specific words he prays? What's the theme of his prayer? And when we look through it, it seems as if there's a progression and there is also some consistency in what he's saying. There's even some repetition. And in many ways, I would say the pattern of Jesus' prayer seems very much 
based off of what we read in Matthew 6, the Lord's Prayer. What Jesus teaches his disciples to pray is, in fact, what he prays in his darkest hour. Notice the passage yet again in verse 39. My Father, consistent, time and time again, do a study, read Jesus as he prays. How does he pray? My Father. How does he teach us to pray? Our Father. This is not a point about being prayer police. This is not for me to be quickly nuancing to make sure that every time someone comes up at church and prays or listens to you pray when we're meeting and that if you don't pray Father that I'm going to slap you on the wrist and say stop it. Pray Father. But there is a consistent pattern of Jesus not only teaching us to pray to the Father, but him modeling praying to the Father. And I would commend not only a right posture in prayer, but a certain way of praying. Pray to the Father as the authoritative one in your life, but also as the one who fatherly cares for his children and has a nurture and love for you. There's a story that I heard from a pastor that I've met where He's um, doing pastoral ministry, and he was saying that he had a, a person he was discipling, and it just seemed like there was a blockage. There was, there was a wall between him and God. There was a disconnect between him and his relationship with God, and he said as they got together and they would meet, he kept noticing again and again that he would pray to God as God, or he would address him as Lord or Master. And at one point, he asked this young man, have you ever prayed to God as Father? And sure enough, the wall came crashing down. For the very first time, he prayed, My Father, who is in heaven. And he realized that the longing and the hurt and the pain of his earthly father relationship was prohibiting him from experiencing the love of the heavenly Father. I wonder, are there any of you that struggle with the idea of praying, my father, because you are projecting all the bad things about your dad onto this father. You know that if you've experienced that pain and that sorrow, that this is precisely what the heavenly father is not like. And so what I would encourage you to do is take all of those bad experiences and realize I should Definitely pray to him as father because I know that he will never fail me like my father did. Pray to the father as father. Meditate on the reality of his fatherly love the way Jesus does. And then notice that he not only just says father, he asks him, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. So there is a, a request. There is a question. Is it possible any other way? Father, could we do this a different route than the cup? And then Jesus, in verse 40, goes to his disciples. And he found them sleeping, and he says to Peter, you could not watch with me one hour and pray. Watch and pray so you don't enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Verse 42, again, for the second time, he went away and then he prayed, my father, if this cannot pass 
unless I drink it, then your will be done. And again, he came and found them sleeping. Their eyes were heavy. He left them again. He went away and he prayed for the third time. And he said the same words. Jesus prays to the Father, just like he instructs us in the Lord's Prayer. He prays, may your kingdom come and may your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. All three times, your will be done. Your will be done. Your will be done. Be done. He prays the same thing, which means he prays it more than once, which sure enough is exactly how he teaches us to pray. Pray to your Father. Pray that his name would be hallowed above all things. Pray that his will be done. Not your will, his will. Align yourself with the will of God through prayer and pray this repeatedly again and again, like that Luke 18 persistent widow that keeps asking the judge again And again, pray, and Jesus models for us the repetition of prayer. And one of the things I love about this story as it teaches us prayer is that there is this juxtaposition, this balance between, on the one hand, it seems, based on the way this goes, that he's asking and then he is getting silence or no. If it's possible, and then he's like, well, since it's not possible, may your will be done May your will be done. Many commentators and and Bible teachers, this is the way they explain a progression of he asks and then he gets the answer, no. But a lot of us don't like that answer. We pray and we ask for something. God, is it possible for this to happen? And then we get silence and we think, he didn't hear me. Doesn't that sound about right? Does that sum up many people that pray? I can tell you that's what it sounds like when I talk to a lot of folks in this church or any other church. We ask for something again and again, and then we get silence and we think, he didn't hear me. He's not listening. Why even pray? But as we saw last week in Hebrews chapter 5 verse 7, when the writer of Hebrews is referring to this event, he says that God the Father answered his prayer by delivering him from death, not by taking the cup away, but by raising him again from the dead. Did the father hear the son? Yes. But there was no other way than the cup. Take heart. Know that the father hears your prayers. And that sometimes you don't like the answer. But that's the whole point of repeating to yourself, not my will, not my will, not my will. Your will be done. I wonder if our posture was humble and bow down and often saying the pattern of Jesus' own words here and as he teaches in the Lord's Prayer, your will be done, maybe, perhaps, we would be less frustrated with God when he is seemingly silent or not hearing us, but really the answer is, your way is not my way, and my way is always better than your way. For the cup and Jesus drinking that cup leading to resurrection is glory and way better than if Jesus would have not submitted himself to the will of the Father. So take on the posture of Jesus' prayer, take on the pattern of Jesus' prayer, and ultimately take on the purpose of Jesus' prayer. Why did Jesus pray? 
And I think it's very clear when he talks to his disciples in verse 39 and going a little further, he fell on his face. He prayed, my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but you. And then he came to his disciples. He found them sleeping. And then listen to the words he says to Peter. So could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Jesus is a human, fully 100% human, and he has a weak flesh. He needs strengthening in this time of trial and temptation. He wants to obey the Father, therefore he prays. The disciples do not obey because they fail to pray. See the connection. Jesus prays, he obeys. The disciples do not pray, they do not obey. They abandon. Pray for the purpose of leading you to obey the Father and align yourself with the will of God. This is not just one little lesson from Jesus in Matthew 26 or the Lord's Prayer in the Sermon on the Mount. This is the consistent testimony of what God's people do throughout the Bible. They call upon the name of the Lord to ask him to do what he has promised that he would do. That is one of the simplest ways to summarize the main gist of prayer throughout the whole Bible. We call upon the name of the Lord and ask him to do the things that he has promised he would do. We are aligning ourselves, not with our wills, but with his, by declaring to him, God, you promised this, so now I'm asking that you would do this. How often do your prayers sound like that? Perhaps they sound a lot more like Adam and Eve in the garden. For as we saw in the very first garden, on the first pages of scripture, Adam chose, and we could almost imagine himself praying, not your will, but my will be done. And do you realize that that attitude and that prayer changed the garden of Eden into a desert wasteland? It brought humanity from the joys of pleasure with God to the sorrows of the Garden of Gethsemane, where Jesus is feeling the dread of the cup, and it's killing him. But praise be to God, a new Adam has arisen, been sent into the world by the will of the Father. And this Adam, Jesus Christ, said, not my will, but your will be done. And that prayer and that choice transformed the desert wasteland of this world to a garden of glory. Do you understand, my friends, that it's not just that Jesus models for us as an example for prayer, but that he paved the way for us to have access back into the garden and brings the whole story of the Bible full circle. So pray. Pray with the posture. Pray with the pattern. Pray with the purpose that we see here in Matthew 26 by Jesus. Lastly, pray with other people. Learn from this passage of scripture. Fourth and final point of this two-part sermon series on the garden is that Jesus wants you to know something. He wants you to know the importance of companionship. Yes, Jesus is praying alone, and he is displaying for us the individual nature of our relationship with God. But at the same time, this passage could not be more clear that he wants companionship during this season. 
Verse 36, follow along. It'll be helpful. If you have your Bibles open, follow along. I'm going to just briefly point out the repetition of with. Verse 36, then Jesus went with them. Verse 37, and taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, James and John. Verse 38, then he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. Verse 40, and he came to the disciples and he found them sleeping. And then he said to Peter, and as you can kind of imagine the exasperated kind of tone that he has, so, really? Could you not watch with me for even one hour? Watch and pray. Verse 43, and then again, he came and he found them sleeping for their eyes are heavy. Again, he came. He went to his disciples. He wanted to be with them. He didn't just say, ah, give up on them. I saw them sleeping. I'm just going to go pray to the Father. He repeatedly comes back to the disciples, checks in on them, wakes them up. Come on, let's pray together. And then he goes and prays. And then he comes back. And then you see the pattern. He wants to be with his disciples. So Jesus wants us to know That he, in this moment and in this hour, this dark, dark season of his life, he wants to be with them. The role of the disciples did not seem to be witnesses of this event as much as it is the intimate companionship that he wants with his closest friends. He needs support, which if Jesus, the sinless son of God, needed companionship and support or even To what degree he needed it or not, he wanted it is obvious from this passage. The fact that he wanted this in this time of trial and testing. How much more than do you and I need and should desire prayer from our closest family of friends? And my question to you then is, do you want companionship, fellowship, and community, and corporate prayer as much as Jesus Is there a longing and a desire in your heart? Has COVID-19, if it has done anything, has it not shown us, wow, we need each other? Anybody feeling thirsty like I've been in a desert of lacking fellowship and I need the church, I need brothers and sisters to pray with me. I need to just talk about the Lord. I need to be in person and not on a TV screen. We need companionship. And Jesus has displayed this beautifully through this passage. And I would encourage us to align ourselves with the character and the desires of the Son of God by desiring above many other good desires. Lots of good things could get our attention. But one of the things we might miss, like the black gorilla jumping up and down, is that Jesus in this moment wants to be with them. With them. With them. This story is a comparison between a courageous man and a cowardly group of disciples. It is a story about a man who is steadfast in a dark hour versus those who are sleepy. It's a story about what the church should be like. Companionship. Have each other's backs. Weep with those who weep. Mourn with those who mourn. And it's a story of what the church is too often actually like. Jesus wanted to be with them more than they wanted to be with Jesus. 
And the church should be a place where in our best days, everyone would desire community and fellowship with one another in the same way that Jesus does. But the reality of sin in a broken and fallen world and in imperfect churches is that we are a lot more like the sleepy disciples than the steadfast Christ. And more specifically, church should be a place not just for friendship and companionship in a broad sense, but especially the companionship and fellowship that Jesus is asking for in prayer. A few weeks ago, I'm talking with a few pastors, and one of them said, you know, it's kind of interesting to see. The real maturity of a church can often be gleaned very quickly to see to what extent a church's interest is in the prayer meetings. In the United States of America, many people treat church and expect church to be much like their consumer purchases and dealings with every other business. The question is, what can I get out of it? And for many people, it's not always just about you self-centeredly, but it might be about your children. What can they get out of it? What kind of programs does this church offer? And this is why, as your pastor, for the last seven years, I have tried to say that we do not want to be the spiritual goods, services, and provider for you to treat us like another Costco or Sam's Club. This is not Amazon Prime membership. You do not put a few dollars into the plate and then you get counseling and kids camp called Vacation Bible School and get some teaching from the Bible and, and that's the exchange that's happening here. The church is the family of God. And therefore, one of the ways that we can see the love and the desire for companionship is when we just go and there's not a whole lot you're going to get other than the giving of yourself, of humbling yourself down and praying together. And so I was thinking about that comment from this pastor and thinking to myself, okay, seven years this church has existed and we have from day one had a desire for prayer meetings. Well, that's good. Check, like we're on the right track. We have the desire, we want to be together in prayer, and it's become a regular part of our church rhythms. And in many ways, I think that there is a lot that we could stand up here and celebrate. I think we should. God's grace is evident in Embassy Church. People came to the prayer meetings. They were on Sunday night, they were on Saturday night, they were on Sunday morning, they're on Zoom right now during COVID, and there are people that come to prayer meetings. Hallelujah, praise God, Several of those meetings were initiated not by the pastors and elders, but by church members who just want to get together and pray. This exists. Embassy, this is not a pat on the back, whoop-de-doo, great for you. This is God's spirit is at work. The spirit of Jesus is evidenced in the last seven years. But man, is prayer, not just individually, but corporately, one of the easiest things to make you feel squished down as like, man, I'm just not a good enough Christian. And it would be just as easy to look back and say, well, we've had a Sunday night prayer meeting, we've had a Saturday night prayer meeting, and we have a Sunday morning prayer meeting, and I can think in all phases of our church's life, at every point, whether it's on Zoom or in person, we have never had the number of people that come to those prayer meetings as we do in normal church service. Is that just logistical, or is there actually something about our desires 
that need to be repented of? Is there actually something that we should do as a church, individually and corporately, to examine that we don't long for companionship and prayer the same way that Jesus does? And so I would encourage you to think, if we do open up a prayer meeting at 10 a.m., before an 11 o'clock church service, how many times will you say, eh, I'm too tired? And you sound just like these sleepy disciples. Or will you have eyes to see the black gorilla jumping up and down? We need prayer, corporate prayer. We need each other. We depend upon prayer. Believing is not just what you see with your eyes. There is a world and a battle and a spiritual one, and prayer is the primary way that we fight temptation. So friends, right now, it would be awesome if we did not have the zeal of Peter and respond to this sermon and a bunch of people be like, I'm joining Monday night's Zoom prayer meeting, and then it lasts for a week. There's a lot of zeal in this passage of Scripture. There's not a lot of follow-through. So I would encourage you to think about your life and the rhythms of this life and the rhythms of this church and for all of us to think about what would be long-term sustainable things that you could do very practically to pray together more. And I hope you know as elders of the church and leaders, we want to try and facilitate that as best as possible. And these times are trying. And Zoom is not ideal. But for now, we have a Monday night prayer meeting. We have a Wednesday night prayer meeting. And there are thousands of opportunities throughout the week for any of you to initiate, as I mentioned earlier, that so many of you have already done. So I hope that as we hear this message, we will respond with prayer. And our spiritual maturity will grow, and one of those evidences will be, look at the prayer meetings. Look at how people are willing to bow down their heads before the Father and they don't necessarily get an immediate answer every time or an immediate reward of like, oh, I got so much out of that, but I gave of myself to the kingdom and to this church and to those around me. Prayer meetings require us, more often than not, to have an attention on the things that we can't see and about the needs that aren't always immediately met. And so I want to encourage you. I want to encourage you with these words. Jesus wanted to be with them. Who's the them? The them is what we see in verse 31. Then Jesus said to them, you will all fall away because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. Let's not take the Garden of Gethsemane out of its context. Let's remember who they are. Jesus just said to them, you all are about to betray me. And he still wants to be with them. Peter was one of them who declared his willingness to die for Jesus. Lots of zeal for Jesus. Verse 33, Peter answered him, oh, though all of them will fall away because of you, I would never fall 
away. Scene change, Peter's sleeping. So much for moral stamina, Peter. And yet, Jesus' repeated pursuit of them is just like his repeated pursuit of us. Even with your initial enthusiasm and your professions of loyalty, you and I will often succumb to our human weakness and lethargy. Oh, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And so may that not be an excuse for you not to join prayer meetings or initiate new ones, but may it be a reason to know that God still wants you in your weakness. This story is about disciples who are unable to play the supporting role when Jesus needs them most. Remember in chapter 25 when Jesus gave this little story about a bridegroom and the guests are waiting. He uses the exact same words he tells his disciples here. He says, be alert, watch to the guests who are waiting and waiting for the bridegroom to come. If you remember that story, it was in the context of Jesus talking about the destruction of the temple and the coming of the Son of Man. In other words, just a page over, a chapter over, in Matthew chapter 25, Jesus is warning his disciples a day is coming when judgment will come down on the temple. And in that day, you need to be awake. You need to be alert. Here we are, one page over. Matthew chapter 26. And an hour of judgment has come upon the very Son of Man. In Matthew 25, Jesus was telling a story and telling them that the temple building would fall down and not one stone would be left on top of another. Here we are in Matthew 26. The temple that is Jesus' human body is falling down on the ground on his face and the disciples do not stay watchful. They only stay awake when they see the light show on the Mount of Transfiguration. But while we're on the Mount of Olives in the Garden of Gethsemane and Jesus is groaning and crying and sweating blood and speaking about a cup that he has to drink, this does not hold their attention. But if they had been able to see this scene and look that there's a big black jumping up and down gorilla in front of their face, they would have been able to see something more glorious and more beautiful than the other mountain on the Mount of Transfiguration. As we said, on that mountain, Jesus shined with glory and beauty. But on this mountain, the glory is not as obvious. Only if you have eyes to see, this is the true glory of the glory of God in the face of Christ. This is the glory of the Son submitting to the will of the Father. It is the glory of the Son willing to drink every last drop of God's anger and wrath and condemnation against all sinners. It is the glory of a God who gives himself for his people. It is the glory of a shepherd that is being struck for the sake of his sheep. It is the glory of power being made perfect in weakness. And lastly, it is the glory of a God who wants to be with them. Abandoned and betrayed, knowing that they were going to betray them. Friends, if you knew your one of closest friends or family members was going to betray you, 
You would not be like, let's spend time together. And the glory of Jesus is that in the very middle of the actual abandoning, he is still pursuing. He wants to be with them. The companionship in this church will only be possible if you first know the companionship of God the Father and his pursuit and desire to be with you through Jesus, who drank the cup, died in our place, rose again from the dead because the prayer was answered, just not in the way that we first thought. And the Holy Spirit gives us that ability to be with him. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we want to come in the name of your Son, Jesus, and pray the way he has instructed us. Father, you are our Father. And we are your children. And we have been adopted, and we know of this adoption because our spirit cries out with your spirit, Abba, Father. And for everyone in here that has been born again and has been adopted into your family, And there's something deep within them that is crying, that is your true home, your true father, your true family. I pray that there would be an unveiling of the blindness to be able to see what's been right in front of their face the whole time. A God who loves them, wants to be with them, and even when they're in the middle of their rebellion and abandonment, You still pursue and desire fellowship with them. I pray that this grace would transform our hearts, that this kindness would lead us to repentance, and that we would not leave here thinking, man, I feel bad that I don't pray enough, but that we would be privileged with the gift of companionship with the Father through the Son by the power of the Holy Spirit, and that joy and that gratitude would give us the fuel we need to be a faithful, maturing, giving, praying church. God, would you do this? Not for our sake, not for our will, not so that embassy can be the next biggest and greatest and most wonderful church, but so that your name would be hallowed, so that you would receive the glory that you are due, so that we would find our supreme joy in the joy of knowing you, and all other joys would pale in comparison to the intimate companionship and fellowship of knowing you, not just alone in the prayer closet, but in the fellowship and the communion of the saints in the church. God, do this. We know we desperately need it. So we're begging, we're asking, again, do it. Not our will, but your will, in the timing and in the way that is best for your sovereign kingdom purposes. Do it. In Jesus' name, amen.